In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Benzodiazepines are dangerous, yet they are the top-selling family of prescription drugs. On today's podcast, we discuss the use and harm of benzodiazepines. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. You can get a hold of us at our email, radgenpodcast at gmail.com. We are currently receiving questions from our listeners for an upcoming episode of You Asked, We Answered. So please reach out to us about questions you have on some of the topics that we have been discussing. And if you have any ideas for future topics, please reach out. We want to thank all of our listeners who up to this point have shared uh, very important feedback. Some of that feedback has even driven uh, future episodes. Today is an episode that um, I think is critically important because of the dangers of this drug and how widely prescribed they are. Today's podcast, we're going to talk about benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are the pharmaceutical industry's top-selling family of prescription drugs. Many of you will know the brand names, such as Xanax, which is Alprazolam. And uh, there are about 94 million prescriptions for various benzodiazepines in the U.S. alone. Nearly one prescription for every three citizens. Wow. Now, we've talked about the dangers of psychiatric drugs on this podcast. Um, We've talked about protecting our youth, even if antidepressants work. We've talked about the chemical imbalance myth. This is a particular drug that is extremely dangerous and many in the U.S. population are vulnerable to receiving a prescription for these because they are powerfully effective. The class of drugs that include Xanax, Ativan, uh, Clonopin, are, they're sedatives and uh, they act on the, the nervous system in a particular way that provides an extreme sense of, of calm and in the short term can be very, very powerful. So why would you ever take a a Xanax? Um, Well, if you are um, having to get a medical procedure done, um, maybe you have to get a, a CAT scan or an MRI and you're claustrophobic, you have to be in a tight space and you have like panic around that. Mm -hmm. The use of like one benzodiazepine can have that sedative effect. Well, there's, there's afraid of flying, fear of flying, fear, basically all the fears, right? Well, no, not basically all the fears. I mean, this, <laughs> this is kind of like a, a, a treatment for that extreme panic response. But you do bring up an important point about the dangers of trying to drug all your fears, right. which I hope to, to get into. Um, it's a scary tranquilizer. Um, it has a real sedative effect. Uh, it's been used off-label for um, for insomnia, and the prescriptions are just increasing. But there are real dangers to to these drugs. 
um, the most important danger you should know is of physiological dependence. If, um, if we get into some of the, the details of, of what dependence looks like, and many clients who are out there were unfortunately and barbarically prescribed these drugs for an anxiety condition for much longer than what, um, what they're safely prescribed for, uh, they can speak to uh, what, ha- what it has done to their mental well-being and their quality of life. I mean, and there's a real uh, difference between you know, addiction and dependence. Uh, this, the use of benzodiazepines in American society is similar to me as the opioid crisis, where these drugs are, are pushed onto the American population. They have an effect um, for a, a short period of time. They have a really important um, possible benefit, uh, opioids, post-surgery and so forth. Sean, we were talking about this this weekend. My daughter's going to get her tonsils out mm. and they're, they're prescribing her an opioid for pain relief after. So in a short period of time, it can help her get through a, uh, a very painful surgery mm-hmm. and the recovery. But again, prolonged use of that drug, uh, creates dependence and you need more and more of that substance to have the same result. Benzodiazepines are similar. Um, they are often given to people in a panic-like state or high anxiety. Um, with the most dangerous of prescribing physicians, they'll even be prescribed to children and adolescents who have what would be typical anxiety conditions for that age range. Is there any um, data that supports the use for children and adolescents? There, in my and I'm going to go over some of this. Okay. In my opinion, there is uh, there is no safe data that is going to support the use of benzodiazepines for the treatment of an anxiety disorder. Oh, in, as a whole. As a whole. Okay. Okay. Um, they may be used in the short term use of a condition. Again, a sedative effect. Um, but there are great prescribing risks to this. So even on the websites for these, for these drugs, um, they are not to be prescribed for more than a two to four week period of time. The reason that they shouldn't be prescribed longer than that is that increased risk of dependence. So if you are prescribing it for somebody who has a panic attack or can't sleep following um, a certain event, if they take it for more than two to four weeks, they're going to have what's called rebound anxiety. That is the body's withdrawal to the drug and it will mimic the same symptoms that they were using to take the drug for the, um, in the first place. Okay. So, um, the longer that somebody has been on, on the drugs, the, the more, the increase in dosage that you'll require. And then you're creating physiological dependence with great, great risk over the past couple months. I have evaluated two, two women in their mid-20s who have been prescribed Xanax for 10 years. Wow. So when they were like in, 10 years old. Mid-20s. Oh, mid-20s. Okay, I'm sorry. So um, around 15, mm-hmm. 16, prescribed Xanax or Clonopin or Ativan. And what I have seen has been the subsequent misdiagnosis of then conditions that are related to the dependence of that drug. So they're, they're diagnosed with panic disorder. 
which fuels the continued prescription of those drugs, and they become emotionally dysregulated and experience symptoms of withdrawal around uh, depressed mood, a lot of crying, even some severe conditions like acastasia. Um, What's that? Acastasia. So acastasia is a horrible side effect. Um, is It's like a sense of inner restlessness, an intense feeling of agitation. Isn't that um, what anxiety is though? Is it, does it mimic that, that type of... No. No? Feel like your skin's crawling. Oh, okay. Um, it could be an uncontrollable movements like rocking and pacing mm-hmm. um, that don't give relief and it leads to suicidal and homicidal ideation. Like it's an intense sense of, of inner restlessness and agitation. Uh, and then they get misdiagnosed as another condition. Additionally, some of the withdrawal symptoms from benzodiazepines include psychosis. So they can get misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder. Um, giving it to a young developing brain also brings about its challenges. The idea that somebody would view their inner experience, like the feeling of nervousness or anxiety, as something to have to drug has a lot of negative mental health consequences where they know they they really lose the ability to self-regulate so it's this point in in our society in our mental health system where someone can actually come in to see you and they've been prescribed a series of drugs benzodiazepines included for so long that you're no longer treating the original mental health condition you're just treating the side effects of the drugs um, is there any data that shows after what period of time those side effects start presenting themselves? After four weeks. Really? Yeah. It's a real, it's, it's a, it's a fast acting drug that creates dependence, um, really, really quickly here. So here are some of the short term risks. Short term use are prescriptions lasting two to four weeks, including, uh, tapering off time consequently, Uh, consecutively or less. So like that's including the tapering off time. Uh, This method of prescribing is safer and aligned with guidelines, recommendations, not uh, um, this method of prescribing is safer and aligned with guidelines, recommendations, but not without any risk. So I have a a, a quick video here um, from professor Sam Tamini is a consultant, a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist and director of postgraduate education uh, in the NHS in uh, Lincolnshire and a visiting professor of child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Lincoln. Even though uh, they can be useful in the short term, one of the big problems is, particularly in the way we think about what we're doing when we're prescribing drugs, psychiatric drugs um, these days, is that even a short-term prescription can open the window towards a long-term one particularly if the prescriber is not aware of the potential for withdrawal symptoms, even after short-term prescriptions. Uh, What that can lead to is the prescriber confusing withdrawal symptoms with a return or even a worsening of the original problem. And from there, the window is opened towards a more long-term prescription rather than helping the person work through whatever withdrawal symptoms uh, are occurring. So I go in and I'm anxious 
and I get prescribed a benzo. And you're saying it could take only two to four weeks. Is that correct for me to become dependent on that? Correct. Okay. What causes the dependence? Is it because of my physiological reaction to the drug? Is it, or is there, do I get, do some people go into this kind of state of euphoria from the drug where you become almost like um, you like that feeling? Tell me a little bit more about that. Like, how would I know if I'm becoming completely dependent on it as a patient? Well, it's relief, Kelly. So um, they're powerfully effective. It's a sedative. So if you're somebody who is struggling with uh, intense anxiety or fear um, or panic, any sign or, or symptom of that anxiety is perceived as dangerous. So the taking of, that, of a drug like benzodiazepine can have this sedative effect where it relaxes the body, it calms the mind. So instead of using the word euphoria, because um, then you begin to talk about it like uh, it's something you abuse purposely, I want to think about it more in terms of like an opioid um, where it can relieve someone of pain. This is an internal pain. Um, and people who are real worriers or are prone to anxiety also have sleep problems generally. And it's been prescribed off-label for sleep where doctors have prescribed it to take like a one milligram of Xanax every night before you go to bed. So we're talking about the risks of use for over two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. In the United States, we are routinely seeing practitioners prescribe these drugs for years. So it could potentially start off as a one milligram dose, but then your body adapts and you need a little bit more to get your sleep. And before you know it, it's that slippery slope. And the body will always adapt, correct? The In body will adapt. Yeah. So if it is so highly addictive and, and the side effects can happen after just a short period of usage, why would you ever receive a prescription that goes beyond it's what a, would medically make sense? It's a really good question. And this is where we talk about modern psychiatry. Modern psychiatry is the drugging of symptomatology. Mm -hmm. And it's dangerous. When you think about your emotional experience as a symptom that has to be relieved for a drug, it opens the door for this type of treatment. And we trust our doctors. We trust that they're not going to give us something that's going to make us sick. And when they work, and they work initially, we think that it is medicinal. I had this anxiety. My problem is my anxiety. And I take this drug and I feel less ang anxious. And you, you can become, obviously, there's not only the physiological dependence on the drug, there's the psychological dependence. I can't function if I feel this feeling. And that is the problem with the modern day approach to mental health from the medical perspective, is that we don't think about things in terms of how to regulate emotions. They think about emotions as symptoms in order to be uh, eliminated. To decrease the severity of that emotion is the approach that's typically taken. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, what is, I think, really upsetting for me is the ignorance that exists out there in the mental health community, not only with prescribing physicians, but also with treating therapists. Treating therapists don't understand what a benzodiazepine is or the risks. So they could be working <laughs> with somebody on a weekly basis and just see them worsening 
And, uh, you know, the assumption is it's that condition, it's that anxiety disorder and not the drugs that they've been prescribed. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 2020, um, you know, this caught the attention of the FDA and, uh, they updated their, uh, benzodiazepine warnings to include the risks of abuse, addiction, physical dependence, and withdrawal reactions. Um, but they did not announce their findings to physicians. There's a lot of physicians that just are not knowledgeable out there mm. on the prescribing risks. Or how else would you be able to make sense of the widespread uh, prescribing of these drugs? Remember, um, you know the, the basics here of these drugs are... Um, that they are the most prescribed psychiatric drug in the United States, class of drug in the United States. So this FDA change, was it just a relabeling on the box? Yeah. Well, doctors aren't handing over the box. They're writing a prescription on their notepad and handing it to the patient and they go to a pharmacy. So they're just doing what they've been doing for the last, you know, 25 years. Except they're supposed to be informed consent. So yeah. they should be telling people pretty, you know, basically that, you know, this is the, uh, these are the side effects and they can cause, you know, mm -hmm. long-term side effects again. Right. Yeah. Um, so this came out in 2020 and the FDA updated their labeling. What, what has happened since then? Cause we have like another two years. I would feel like there are some, some, some increased awareness of this in terms of making sure that informed consent happens. Well, what happens when, even when this happens is there's really some unaddressed problems that remain. Uh, what about the help for the harmed patients? Um, Those that have been on it for 10 years. Yeah. And who have tried to get off of them. There are real, real dangers for those who have, um, who have tried to get off. There's severe, it's severe and life threatening. Um, and if you take them with other drugs, um, you know, there's even more severe health effects. So um, let's just go into some of the uh, the long-term, uh, you know, side effects here that exist. Uh, there's so many. Mm. Uh, I'm going to direct our, our listening audience to the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. I'll include the link in our show summary. Yeah, there is so many side effects uh, for benzodiazepines. You know, whether it's Valium, Clonopin, Xanax, uh, Transexine, Librium, Ativan. Um, the list is, is vast and it's wide. For all parents that are out there, I would, I hate saying never, and I'm not a medical professional, but you would have to, you would have to really convince me the value of these drugs uh, for any mental health condition in, in children or teens. Um, I don't know, if, you know how much of a value there is for these drugs at, as adults, but at least adults have the ability to um, consent on their own. And we always have to protect the well-being of, of children. But when these drugs are being provided and they are, they are being told to, to parents that if your teen is experiencing anxiety, this will help and provide relief. So kids who are having just the anxiety of going to school that particular day, some of them are taking Xanax or Clonopin 
just to go to school in that particular day. Think about the, the message that you're sending to that child. One, you're sending the message to the child that they're sick and they need to take this drug. But second, you're, you are now taking one step forward to a lifelong dependence on a controlled substance. Uh, I'm uh, sorry, I'm, I'm on this site right now and I'm kind of clicking through it and I'm amazed. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm amazed um, of the amount of information that they have on here. And, and I, I'm recognizing that some of the names associated with this uh, benzodiazepine uh, information coalition are, are associated with that film, uh, Medicating Normal, which was excellent that, that I did watch. Um, but there's also a, a section on celebrities that have been um, impacted by the use of benzodiazepines. And uh, uh, I'm shocked I see Jordan Peterson on here. Yeah, And, you know, he's a clinical psychologist and he's really an advocate for informed consent and the fact that he was a victim of uh, exposed use and had went through some horrific withdrawals from the sick drug. for almost a year. Yeah. That to me is just, it's, it shows that the informed consent isn't happening, that someone who is specialized in this area would uh, become a victim of this really um, a great site in terms of the amount of information they have on here. And going back to what you just said about a student who might be anxious and going to school, from what I'm gathering about benzos and what you're telling me is we're basically medicating anyone who overthinks, overanalyzes, has a very busy mind, an unquiet mind. And instead of at a very young age anyway, of trying to get them to, you know, acknowledge that, talk out things, you can get through this. We're basically giving them a quick fix of, of, of um, a sedative. Is that correct? That is correct. You know, I mean, it, it, it's almost ridiculous that we're actually having this podcast right now to have to profess these warnings, but there are medical professionals that will do harm. I personally believe that they're, um, for those who are prescribing outside of these warnings, they should lose their medical license. Prescribing the children, you know, I want them personally in jail. I believe that strongly about this type of, of treatment and it exists in our community and it exists in our community quite frequently. And I, I think I have to be a more vocal advocate of protection from this type of abuse. I'm just looking at, right now we're doing this podcast and we are going through this Benzodiazepine Information Coalition website. And there's a litany of malpractice lawsuits that have, have existed um, you know, from the United States to the UK. Um, and, and they give you opportunities and information here on how to file a medical board complaint. And the only way that we're going to, to change the harmful practice in our communities in the United States is if we stand up against it and the medical professionals who've become legalized drug dealers are, um, are held responsible. They're held liable for the harm that they have created in their patients uh, over extended period of time. You know, what is really frightening to me is how many of these patients who come into our practice were never even informed of the harm. They weren't aware of these ideas of withdrawal and the rebound anxiety and what could be expected and what's happening in their brains and their bodies. And instead, they're just taking this drug, they're feeling worse, and they're coming to this conclusion that they're mentally ill. They're almost getting that label of the quote unquote chemical imbalance, which was our very first episode we ever recorded where we were talking on about that. And I, I recall maybe it was our episode five, uh, do antidepressants even work where I was jumping in and reading some of the labeling to 
say, all right, if people are on these for a very extended period of time, there's got to be some supporting documentation in this insert that shows how to um, do it uh, in a in a healthy way without abuse. And there was absolutely no information in there whatsoever, uh, which shows how quickly this can this can happen. And um, and for most people, they trust their doctors. And, uh, and that's where the harm happens. Well, as they should, but uh, so these benzos are being sold as a almost, are they being sold as a cure in some cases to anxiety or are they actually being told, well, listen, this is just short term. I mean, overall, because if there's that many people that are becoming, um, reliant on that and they're being told that it's, it's you, it, one day you'll wake up and everything will be okay without them. Is that the case here? Or are they being told, listen, you have an anxiety disorder. So you're going to be on this for the rest of your life. Yeah. Too general of a question. And, uh, you know, obviously there's probably, you know, prescribers out there who are very ethical and research based and, uh, may prescribe these under the dose requirements that are, that are, um, that are suggested and that are very careful in their approach. What we're speaking to are the prescribers who are recklessly writing the prescription every month for years mm-hmm. and actually think viewing it as, as therapeutic, uh, completely ignorant to the brain damage and the risks of this prolonged use, uh, both psychologically and physically, the dependence that, that is created and how it impairs a person's quality of life. And for those who are recklessly prescribing them as a, uh, a drug to treat insomnia and sleep problems, um, this has, this is just an educational podcast. I hope, you know, our listeners out there understand the frustration of working in a system where this is how people with very treatable conditions are mismanaged and they're mismanaged in a way that creates drug dependence. And listen, I'm, yep. I, I can only relate my own experiences to this. So um, I, I didn't have an anxiety uh, or uh, anything that needed treatment, but I was going on a, um, a long trip. I was traveling to an, an Asian country and I went to my doctor um, because I was like, I never sleep on airplanes and I'm going to be on an airplane for over 20 hours. And he was like, do you want something? And I was like, well, what are my options? He's like, well, you can take this or you can take this or you can just do like the Tylenol PM. You know, if that works for you, that would probably be better. Um, he's like, but I can give you a prescription for this. I can't remember that, which, which drug it was. Um, he's like, but I'm only give you three. He's like, that'll, that'll get you there. Save one on the trip back. And maybe if you need one to, to sleep while you're at the destination. And to me, that seemed like a very logical approach to it. Um, where he recognizes that it, there was probably some potential harm that could come. And he didn't want me to have, uh, access to like 10 or 20 pills that for any time I feel like I need a little bit of sleep, I can, you know, just pop one of those because of, uh, it was probably highly addictive. The alternative to this would be, again, we go back to what we've always said in this podcast would be to say you would be journaling or, you know, exercising or getting sunshine and things like that. I mean, isn't that much a better approach to a long-term solution to, you know, how about a safe and effective evidence-based psychotherapy? You know, because I think the people who are turning to benzodiazepines generally are exhibiting signs and symptoms of anxiety, 
really impairing their life or, or sleep that's impairing their life. And so what you're referring to is some of these lifestyle changes, you know, that are adjunct to really effective psychotherapies. They're really important. I support them. They should be part of a comprehensive mental health treatment. But the idea of self-regulation, emotion regulation, the science base that supports how do people deal with their own internal experiences around anxiety, very, very effective treatments, cognitive behavioral treatments, exposure-based treatments, and just time. You know, that concept of uh, like weightful watching where you just take some time and you understand that what the person is going through experiencing that and understanding that in context, they tend to be episodes that people can work through effectively when there's adequate support. It's this rush to judgment, to medical intervention in American society driven by the pharmaceutical industry that is, you know, creating this inadequate harmful care and drug dependence, you know, drugs like this. Um, and the idea that there can be some short term fix has, uh, has problems in the long-term mental health care of the individual. Suicide is, is a great example. Uh, the prescribing risks um, do include, uh, you know, suicide for, for people who have been on these drugs. You know, the, the withdrawal effects to benzodiazepines are so significant and so severe, it drives people to want to end their life. And if they weren't properly provided informed consent, they may not be thinking about their own dependence on that drug as drug-related. They could think about it as a mental illness. Because they don't know. So can we go back to the, the stories that you started off sharing? Um, someone who's been on this drug for 10 years, how can you put them in a position to taper responsibly or even as a de-prescribing? De, um, Is that the word that they use? Yeah, tapering, deprescribing. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that you have to provide them the adequate um, education. So the first thing that I say is they have to be, now they have to be under medical monitoring. Sometimes mm -hmm. they only see their, their prescribing psychiatrist for like once a month for a five-minute Zoom. They just keep getting the prescription. And so I tell them about the dangers of, um, of deprescribing. Uh, the longer that they've been on the drug, the more dangerous uh, exists and they, they can't stop cold turkey you if you stop cold turkey your life is at risk okay okay it's that dangerous so there needs to be a a tapering process off the drug which most prescribers taper off way too fast and then there's the you know you're at risk for protracted withdrawal symptoms now there's something called the ashton manual um and i've think all prescribers should be aware of the Ashton uh, manual and how to um, how do you slow withdraw schedules. But for my purpose as a mental health professional, as a psychologist, is to provide them the information about the dangers of the drug and what they may be experienced from prolonged use. I then have to refer them back to the prescriber and explain to the prescriber that they are experiencing uh, benzodiazepine dependence. And, um, you know, there'll be at times where the prescriber will just be defensive and say, I don't think that is it. And I would, you know, all I can do is express to them the data. Once you start 
prescribing these drugs over a month, they are going to be experiencing withdrawal. You know, there's no doubt about it. They're powerfully addictive drugs. Um, and not everyone takes their, you know, their drugs as prescribed. Sometimes it's hard to get refills. So them, them going through withdrawal makes them believe that they require the drug uh, in order just to function. Uh, but they don't understand that that's a, that's a withdrawal reaction. So slow tapering is extremely, extremely important. And uh, I'm not really familiar with the tapering process. Well, I, I, um, I, I just went to the Ashton manual. So it, you're right. It, it's broad depending on your uh, benzodiazepine that you are taking and what the, um, the milligrams are. So there's a, a different tapering approach that's recommended in there uh, for all of those, and it varies. So you need to be specific with understanding your drug and how long and, and what your milligrams are. And the thing that's so important is that we have, uh, you know, mental health clinicians, whether they're psychologists or social workers or licensed professional counselors, they don't have the knowledge of all these drugs. And there's like a, a separation in the mental health care industry. It's like the drugs are for the medical professionals. That's their job. We do the therapy, but they fail to understand that the client presentation is directly related to the drugs that they're taking. Mm -hmm. And if they're taking certain drugs, you cannot successfully administer an evidence-based treatment. So we know the, the, um, the, the positive effect of exposure-based treatments for anxiety disorders. They are the standard of care. Um, I hate using the word gold standard, but uh, safe use of an effective use of exposure-based principles in behavioral treatments is highly effective for a range of anxiety disorders, including post-traumatic stress. And it's non-addictive. Of course, non-addictive, <laughs> right? It's, uh, it's repeated exposure um, with coping and support where you essentially learn that you can tolerate the experience mm -hmm. and there's brain changes that occur. We know that it's now through, through neuropsychology, functional um, magnetic images in exposure-based treatments that there is uh, you know, a process of like deregulation, deregulation of the amygdala, the fear production part of our brain, mm -hmm. and that we experience anxiety less intensely the more frequently we're exposed to whatever is anxiety provoking, right? It's like we have this ability to learn. We've adapted. We've learned that it's safe. I'm no longer fearful of the same situation. These should be the frontline treatments. But we have, we have people who are experiencing anxiety disorder are being prescribed these drugs, and they're basically on these very powerful sedatives, which inhibits the exposure process. And the learning process internally is that if they experience that emotion, they need a drug uh, to, in, in order to relieve them of that symptom, which is not compatible with exposure. So this idea that you can be on a, on a benzodiazepine and receive cognitive behavioral treatment or an effective evidence-based treatment for an anxiety disorder is ridiculous. I can't even believe that there are professionals who accept this. And it makes no sense if the drug is actually causing the, the new anxiety that the person's experiencing, yeah. basically going on for, through withdrawal, and they come to you, and then, you know, 
That just doesn't make any sense yeah. at all. First, yeah. do no harm. So if there's harm happening, <laughs> let's let's prevent that from happening. Obviously. Yep. First, do no harm. And unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of, we're also a training center here. So a lot of people come out of doctoral programs or master's programs. They'll come in and they'll, they'll, they'll come here for training and to be a part of our center. This is all new information to them. I mean, I'm, I'm sure even right now, there are members of our center who are listening to this podcast and they realize that they don't do anything when it comes to these drugs, that, you know, their clients are on all these drugs and it's so far outside their scope. Um, they don't take the steps to be able to investigate it, support it, contact the prescriber, do anything about it. They just stay in their lane. And guess what? Staying in your lane can harm somebody. So first do no harm therapists, right? Is you have to have a, a more adequate knowledge base of the damage of these drugs. Start with benzodiazepines, you know, at our center, I do not treat people who are on benzodiazepines, right? No treatment starts. There's no effective psychotherapy for someone who's on benzodiazepines other than supporting the safe tapering off those drugs under medical supervision. So if, it, if a if, um, psychiatrist then says, yes, you're right, and we'll taper, right? And they agree with you, and then we'll work together, and they taper off. How, how long do you know about how long it takes for, for that? I know you said you don't know much about it. I don't know. It, 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 I just it, I glanced, so um, it, it depends. It could be a year. So after a year, then you could actually work with them so, so, so that they're away from that. Okay. So Raj, to your point, um, as we uh, went through the interview process for um, our externs and our postdoctoral residents, you know, sometimes I'd ask a question like, what are your thoughts on Center for Integrated Behavioral Health? What do you know about us? And there was a few that said, well, I know that you're the uh, anti-drug place. And <laughs> I would kind of like, you know, giggle to myself because, you know, it comes down to perceptions, right? So... Dr. McFillin is very vocal about the harm that these drugs cause from extended use. And someone needs to be vocal to draw attention to it. But, you know, Roger might get a reputation as being that guy, but he has to be that guy because who else is being that guy? If people are staying in their lanes, no one's going to get better, right? It's just going to continue to happen. So there needs to be a vocal minority to influence that those in the middle but it's not even about like oh well he's the this is anti-drug this is anti-abuse of prescribing drugs there that should be a collective oh yeah, yeah we should all agree on that and make sure again everybody that's receiving a drug in this country gets the informed consent is is given ample time to to decide whether or not they really want to go through. Yeah, but it. I'm always talking about perception versus reality. Well, right. I, People get a label, or they, um, you know, make fun of Roger on Twitter as being this the big pharma, you know, that type of stuff. And I, I kind of giggle at it because they're getting defensive. What are you getting defensive about? Like you, you should you're be invali at, invalidating. We had that discussion because yeah. I brought that up in one of the original podcasts. I think people that some in some cases feel as if the the medications do help them. However, in, in many instances, maybe they're on benzos for only, they've only been on for a year and maybe they still feel as if it does help them. Mm -hmm. So give it time, give it 10 years and see if they tweet the same thing. I mean, I, I got chills up, up my spine for someone who's on it for a year. You know, you're talking about more than two weeks causes a problem. Yeah. We're talking about a year. Well, it's, it's language, the anti-drug guy, right? Yeah. Or other things you hear, well, can't you, can't you support a balanced approach? 
No, not if it's for extended periods of time. <laughs> not if it's harmful. Yeah. And so I think what we're doing is we're trying to present like, scientific data. Meet me in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and we're trying to present scientific data. And if the scientific data um, doesn't meet a narrative, it's and it's like it's a narrative that that drugs and therapy are the standard of care. Well, then people start to feel threatened by this idea because that if that's the standard, we're talking about millions and millions of people who were told to believe that just talking to somebody and going on a drug is mental health treatment. But you, if you start thinking about all drugs as if they're the same class, right? So let's no longer put people in the categories drug, anti-drug. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about safe, effective, do no harm, okay? Yeah, you want to take a Xanax before you go on a major surgery, you want to take a Xanax before the flight to Australia? Go take a Xanax, right? Be prescribed on that. If someone's coming into a hospital-based center in, um, and is out of control, okay, prescribe them Ativan or a Xanax and calm them down in order to figure out what is going on and you can treat them effectively. That is the short-term use where it has some benefit in society. Monthly prescriptions for anxiety conditions? There's no science base. It's not safe. That's harmful. There is no question about it. There's no debate. There's no more science to be able to determine whether who, when, what, where, and who's it effective for. It's dangerous to all human beings. Don't be on these drugs for more than two weeks. Don't take them for insomnia. They're not approved. They, They are not approved or they're not helpful for panic disorder, right? Maybe one initial panic attack very early on before you can get them into a, a, a cognitive behavioral treatment. But no, you don't take benzodiazepines for the rest of your life because you had a panic attack at one point in time. Mm-hmm. You're just drug dependent. And I think most people start that way. And I, I think of like airplanes and I'm, there are people that probably experience some traumatic events and I'm, I'm minimizing it to the fact of like someone getting on an airplane for the first time and being highly anxious and they're afraid they're going to have a panic attack on an airplane. They're prescribed a Xanax to just get them through that experience. Now, after they've experienced the whole anxiety of the unfamiliar, at some point they realize that they no longer need um, they no longer feel that way and they no longer need a Xanax to get on an airplane. Right. I mean, that, that would be my assumption. Well, I, I think experience and exposure, like he said, I mm-hmm. mean, so if I go on the first time and I'm really, really afraid and the problem is that it, you it, just can't get repeated right. exposures to Correct. flying. So, I mean, That's your hard. brain's not going to adapt or learn. There's people who develop that fear of flying and it's yeah. fairly persistent. Um, so I can understand in, in those particular situations. What I can't get over is prescribing a teenager Xanax who has social anxiety, who mm-hmm. has a problem going to school. I mean, that is criminal. Flat out criminal. So you're numbing somebody so they can go to school. You're sedating them to go to school. And you're, being numb so you can't even learn. Well, well, I, I don't know if it's that to that extent. It's, it's a sedative. You're, uh, medi- you're medicating overthinking. That's what you're doing though, right? Yeah, drugging. Sure. Yeah, I don't even use the word medicating anymore because it it communicates like there's a medicinal quality to it and uh no it's just it's drugging you're, you're, you're drugging somebody to deal with their emotional state but listen i i can't underscore the harms of benzodiazepines um we could spend an entire 
uh, podcast on the negative health effects of benzodiazepine use. Um, so go to the website. Well, right on the label of, of the benzos is actually may cause increased anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of psychiatric drugs. Just go to the, the, the website, Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Right? Um, you I think know, it's benzoinfo.com. Benzoinfo.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very comprehensive. Okay. Um, for patients out there, be aware of the risks. You cannot abruptly stop these drugs. You can't take tapering uh, into your own hands. There is potential for severe and life-threatening consequences. For clinicians, please be aware of the dangers of benzodiazepines. If your clients have been taking this for a prolonged period of time, please understand that's outside what is deemed safe. They are now doing harm. You are not going to be able to administer an effective psychotherapy in these conditions. For prescribers out there who are treating their patients in this way by writing these prescriptions for drugs, please understand that your medical license is at risk and should be. And uh, there are uh, a number of malpractice and class action lawsuits uh, that exist across countries. And there are updated, very clear evidence-based prescribing guidelines for these drugs. And you are acting outside of those guidelines of what is safe and what is deemed effective. Uh, We encourage all prescribers to do adequate research now of, of the harms and not act outside the uh, safe guidelines that have become the, the scientific standard for, for these drugs. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis, or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.